السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته. بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم، الحمد لله رب العالمين، والعقيدة للمتقين، ولا عدوان إلا على الظالمين. وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له، إله الأولين والآخرين، وأشهد أن نبينا محمد عبده ورسوله المصطفى الأمين. اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على عبدك ورسولك محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين. أما بعد. So welcome to uh, what is actually our final lesson of Quranic progression for this academic year. So we normally run our year from like September time and the August September until Ramadan. And so this was going to actually be our final lesson for this particular academic year. So this is our final lesson for our fourth year of Quranic progression. And just very briefly for those of you that are familiar with this program, Quranic progression we began uh, some four years ago. And the idea was to do a detailed, in-depth tafsir of the Qur'an according to the tafsir of the Salaf, So the very idea of Qur'anic progression is that number one, we take our time. So we go very slowly because we take a very in-depth and detailed look at the verses of the surah that we are, uh, that we are studying. So just to give you an idea, we began four years ago from Surah to Nas because we're going in reverse order from the back of the Qur'an we started from Surah Al-Nas and just last week we finished Surah Al-Fajr. So we did, you know, from Surah Al-Nas only up to Surah Al-Fajr. We haven't even done half a juz of Juz Amma yet in four years. And that's because we take a very detailed look at the verses of the Quran. And one of the things that we like to focus on in this class is looking at the very early tafsir that the Salaf had, so the tafsir of the companions, the tafsir of the students, the tabi'in, and the very early scholars. So one of the books that we like to refer to often, and it's not the only book, but sometimes or one of the major books that we refer to is the Tafsir al-Imam al-Tabari, rahimahullah ta'ala. And other tafsir that were written around that era, slightly before, slightly after, Tafsir of Ibn Abi Hatim and Tafsir of Abdul Razak and others from amongst the very early scholars of Islam. These uh, particular books of hadith, or uh, books of tafsir, are books that are extremely important for the student of knowledge. Because when you are studying the tafsir of the Qur'an of the Book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the best tafsir that you can use is the tafsir of who? Of the companions who were there when the Qur'an was revealed, a witness to revelation of the Qur'an. So when it comes to the principles of tafsir, we said that the first principle of tafsir that we take, or the first source from where we take principles of tafsir, is from the Book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the Qur'an. So if we're taking it from the Qur'an, the question that I asked was how? So Allah doesn't say this is a principle of tafsir. Where therefore do we take the principle of tafsir from the Quran? How do we know this is a principle of tafsir? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran this is a principle then for tafsir. How do we take a principle of tafsir? Yes, what is that called in Arabic? It is called istiqra. Istiqra means to read and look for passages. To go through all of the Quran and see Allah does this all the way, all the time, all the time, all the time. Well, therefore, it must be a principle in the Quran. Right? Like one of the things that Allah mostly does, often, there are some exceptions, but the general rule is if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions reward, He also mentions punishment. You know, right? this is a pattern throughout the Quran. And so this is like this, so you, it's called istiqra, you read and read and read and then you see patterns emerging. 
they also take it from the Sunnah of the Prophet وسلم, the second source of legislation. So principles of tafsir are found within the Sunnah. Principles of tafsir are found within the statements of the companions. Principles of tafsir are found in the statements of the Salaf, the Tabi'een and the students and others. And so the scholars of Islam, when they went through this, they started to derive the principles of tafsir. But for the first two or three generations, for the first 200 odd years, or 150 years anyway, there are no books written in tafsir and in Qawai tafsir, just like there are no books that are written in hadith and other sciences, it starts towards the end of the first century, but there is no, nothing written in that way. But the scholars learned it because they took it in the way that they took knowledge. They will learn tafsir with its usul and so on. But then slowly, towards the end of the second century or middle of the second century, they start to now write it. So for example, Imam Shafi'i rahimahullah ta'ala writes his famous book in Usul al-Fiqh that is considered to be the first book called Al-Risal. And he writes his book in Usul al-Fiqh. Much of what is in Usul al-Fiqh is also Usul al-Tafsir. Why? Because Usul al-Fiqh speaks about how to deduce rulings from the sources of legislation. The first source of legislation is the Qur'an. So therefore he's writing on how to benefit from the Qur'an. What are the rules that take rulings from the Qur'an? And so Imam al-Shafi'i within that whole chapter, there is a big chapter that is dedicated the books of Usul al-Fiqh to the Qur'an. And then after that the scholars continue to do so. But they didn't write a book just on Usul al-Tafsir. So what they would write is within their Tafsir they will mention Usul. So the books like of Imam al-Tabari, the other books of Tafsir that would come later on, but the other books that were written, such as, for example, uh, the book of Ibn Qutaybah, the Mushkil Quran, and the book of um, the book of the other scholars, Ibn Hazm, for example, his book Al-Hikam, all of those books that were written at that time, some of them are Usul al-Fiqh books, but they speak about Quran. And others are books of Tafsir, but they speak about Quran. And others are books of Ulum al-Quran, but they speak about Quran and Tafsir as well. And so you find throughout them different, you know, different things that you will benefit from. And that's why one of the best ways of seeking that type of knowledge, and it is difficult to do. And that is why scholars later on they came and they wrote books on this topic. But one of the best ways of finding that is to actually go and read through those books. But those are and that is a big thing to do, and it is a big, uh, a big responsibility to have as well. But later on then, scholars started to write books on this particular topic. From the first books that were written was by a scholar by the name of, or he's known as Fakhruddin ibn Khatib, who died in the year 621 of the Hijrah. And he has a book that he wrote called Awa'id al-Tafsir. Awa'id al-Tafsir. And this book, Awa'id al-Tafsir, is lost. You don't have it anymore. You can't find it. So Awa'id al-Tafsir is not a book that we have present because certain books over time were lost for one reason or another. Another book that was written on this particular topic that is a book by itself on Qawaid al-Tafsir is the book of Ibn al-Sa'id, the Hanafi scholar. And his name, and the book's name is Al-Manhaj al-Qawin fi Qawaid al-Ta'allaqu bil-Qur'an al-Kareem. Al-Manhaj al-Qawin fi Qawaid al-Ta'allaqu bil-Qur'an al-Kareem. And then there came a scholar by the name of Ibn al-Wazir who died in the 840 of the Hijrah and he wrote a book called Qawaid al-Tafsir. But in essence, that book is part of a larger book. There are chapters on this, and then some of the scholars wrote some of the manuscripts were extracted, and it was made into a separate book. One of the books that you find that is, is very well known even to today is the book of Ibn Taymiyyah, Ta'ala. 
ابن تيميه بروتوكول مقدمه في اصول التفسير an introduction to اصول التفسير and the book is very short it's not a long book it's not a big book but it is a book in which ابن تيميه رحمه الله تعالى speaks about some of the principles of tafsir and one of the major things that he speaks about and we will come on to this when we go through one of the examples but one of the major things and this shows you the importance of learning usul tafsir is that he establishes a principle which is very important for the student of tafsir and that is that the majority of the statements of the early scholars the salaf and when we say salaf primarily we're referring to the companions and we're referring to the students of tabi'in and we're referring to their students that were tabi'in those very early three four five generations of muslims the majority of what he says he says what you find there in terms of their differences are actually not differences they are simply expressions of the same thing it is the same thing but each person is saying it in a different way that's one of the major principles that he established in that book one of the other books that then came much later you know relatively uh, recently is the book of Sheikh uh, Abdurrahman ibn Nasr al-Sa'di who was the teacher of Sheikh Al-Uthaymeen from the scholars of Qasim who died in the year 1376 of the Hijrah 1376 of the Hijrah he has a book which is called Al-Qawahid al-Hisan Ki Tafsir al-Quran the beautiful principles in Tafsir of the Quran and in that book he mentions a number of principles but there is more than principles Ibn Sa'di mentions patterns that he thinks have emerged or patterns that he considers to have emerged throughout the Quran so they are not all principles but there are many nice contemplations and benefits that he mentions within that book and there is a nice book that is published published a number of times it is a nice book it should be read and studied especially in Arabic I'm not sure if it's been translated into other languages but it is a very nice book on this particular uh, on this particular topic okay. when it comes to the Qawaid of the Quran there are a number of principles that are mentioned a number of principles that the scholars mention and those principles are usually of two types usually of two types the first is a general principle that more or less applies throughout the Quran general principle that more or less applies throughout the Quran and then there are principles that they mention that refer to a specific topic or refer to a specific science from the sciences of the Quran and what the scholars often do is that they mention both together they mention both together so for example the, the example that I gave earlier that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala often in the Quran when he speaks about punishment he also speaks about reward they're often mentioned together that's a general principle that you find most of the time in the Quran but sometimes what you will find is that the principle doesn't refer to overall the Quran, it refers to a particular subject matter or a particular thing that is mentioned. So for example, for example, what the scholars often say in terms of Makki surahs, what is the general ruling of Makki surah, uh, surahs, that the verses are shorter, that they usually rhyme more, that they usually speak about issues of Iman and so on and so forth, whereas the Madani verses are longer and they refer more to and rulings of fiqh and so on and so forth okay. 
So now I'm going to speak about some of these principles of tafsir. So that was an introduction into the principles of also, uh, the principles of tafsir. I want to now give you some examples of this. So for the remaining part of this lecture, we will look at some certain principles. And there are many principles. If you go through the books, there are like probably you know, over 100 principles that you can, that you can study. And uh, Sheikh Saadi in his own book, I think he mentioned something like 78 principles, or even more than that. So there are many principles that you can go through. So what we want you to do though is give examples, because the purpose of this is to give you an introduction into Surah Tafsir. So I want you to look at these examples, see what the Qaida is, let us give an example of the Qaida, and so we can understand what it is that we are referring to. So when it comes to the principles of Tafsir, one of the ways that they are categorized is that they are categorized by subject matter. So for example, principles of Tafsir to do with Nuzul Quran, Sadrul Nuzul, the causes of revelation. Principles of Tafsir to do with Makan and Nuzul, the place of revelation of the Makki or Madani. Principles of Tafsir to do with Iraqat. Principles of Tafsir to do with the statements of the companions. Principles of Tafsir to do with the statements of the Salaf, meaning after the companions and the other scholars who came. Principles of Tafsir to do with the Arabic language and so on. So what they do is they categorize them, or some of the scholars, they categorize them according to subject matter, according to science, according to topic. So for example, if we were to take these subjects or some of these subject matters, and then we will look at some of the principles that are mentioned therein. So for example, Sababul Nuzul. What is Sababul Nuzul? Causes of Revelation. What does cause of Revelation mean? It means one of two things. Either an incident took place and then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals something of the Quran. Or the Quran, a Quranic verse is revealed because of a, uh, and then a situation takes place after that. And so for example, in the first one, right, very, you know, there are many examples of the first one. Everyone knows, for example, people are drinking the Allah Azza reveals verses concerning Khamar. Right? The people are, for example, uh, Allah subhanahu wa So there is a, a story of revelation, the story of Umar cause of revelation for the revelation of that verse. Or the people have done something, or though the Quran has already been revealed, and then we see that there is a cause of revelation, or there is something that has happened that people are referring to. So for example, when the Qibla is changed from Mecca to, or from Jerusalem to Mecca, and then they go to the companions who are praying towards Quba. So they were praying in Meshit Quba. In some narrations, it is what we call today Qiblatin. There are different narrations. And so the companion comes to them and he tells them that they need to change their direction of prayer. So they change their direction of prayer. Some of the scholars said that that was a cause of revelation. It shows to you that the scholars of old, when they see the word cause of revelation, they have two meanings. The first meaning, and this isn't our topic by the way, but anyway, since we entered it now, the cause of revelation, they mean two things. Number one is, this is the reason for which the, the verse was revealed. And the second one is, that this is an incident that took place around the revelation. Not that it is the direct cause. So the first is, it is a cause. The second one is, that it is an incident that took place around the cause of that particular revelation. So when it comes to Asbab al-Muzul, let me give an example of a Qa'id. The Qa'idah says that a cause of revelation takes the ruling of a hadith of the Prophet 
It has what we call So when the companion says that this is what happened and then this is the revelation that took place, it is as if it is being said by who? The Prophet It is considered to be a hadith. Why is it considered to be a hadith? Because he is relaying something which took place. Like for example, some of the sunnah is what? It is a description of what the Prophet did. He made wudu like this. The Prophet didn't say anything. The companion is describing how did he make wudu? How did he pray? How did he perform hajj? These are descriptions. This is similar to that. The companion said, this took place. The man came to the Prophet Allah is going to reveal the Quran concerning this. Like for example, the hadith of Aisha When she came, the woman came to the house of the Prophet to complain about her husband. Because her husband had said to her, you are like my mother to me. And the Arabs would call, do this what we call lihar. Lihar is basically where a man doesn't divorce his wife, but he doesn't want to stay with her as a wife either. So he likens her to the mother. The Arabs would do this, and it was a form of oppression. You're not my wife, but you're not divorced either. So when this happened, a lady came, one of the female companions, she came to the Prophet ﷺ in the house of Aisha. What does Aisha say? The Prophet ﷺ was speaking with this lady, and I was only on the other side of the room. And the rooms are small. It's like the size of this, maybe even smaller than this particular room. And she says that I couldn't hear their conversation because they were speaking in a low voice. And what did Allah say in the Quran? Allah has heard the statement of the woman who is complaining of her husband. That is called Sabab and Nuzul. Sabab and Nuzul lahu hukmurrah. The qa'idah, the principle therefore is that when you have the revelation, the cause of revelation, it is considered to be a hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And that's why you find many of them, for example, in the books of hadith. You find them in Bukhari and in Muslim and in Abu Dawood and Tirmidhi and so on. Those are all different uh, causes of revelation that are mentioned within the different books of, of Sunnah. Another qa'idah, another example of also sabab al-muzul. Of also sabab al-muzul. The general principle is that when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals, or when there is a sabab al-nuzul rather, when there is a cause of revelation that is mentioned, it is only for one incident. One incident. And if there is more than one narration, then we have to look at that. Because sometimes you find within a narration that there are different, uh, one verse that there are different narrations. One companion said it was revealed because of this. Another companion said it was revealed because of that. So now we need to look to see whether it was revealed twice. Some scholars said some verses were revealed twice by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Another scholar said no, one is referring to the actual incident, the cause of revelation. The other one is referring to a circumstance that took place during that time. It doesn't mean that it was revealed about this particular incident, but that it relates to a similar principle. And you find this also many times within the Quran, many times within the Sunnah. So for example, let me give you an example of this. The hadith of Ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu, in the blessed Surah Al-Isra, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَيَسْأَلُونَكَ عَنِ الْرُوحِ They ask you concerning the ruh, the soul. In the hadith of Ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu, in Bukhari and Muslim, he says that this verse was revealed when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam walked by a group of Jews. The Jews that used to live in Medina. 
And so some of them said to the, each other, they said, why don't you go and ask him? And others said, don't ask him. And some said, go and ask him, meaning who? The Prophet And some of them said, if you ask him and he tells you, then he may tell you something that you don't want to hear. Better you don't ask him. But others said, no, go and ask him. And so they wanted, they differed over, over this. So then they came to the Prophet and they said, O Abu Qasim, tell us about the Ruh. What is the Ruh? And so the Prophet stood and he looked at the heavens. Ibn Mas'ud says, so we understood that Allah was giving him revelation. And then he recited the verse where Aluna they ask you concerning the ruh, the ruh is from the affairs of my Lord, and you have very little knowledge. That is one narration that you find within the Sunnah. Another narration, the one that is collected by Imam al Tirmidhi, Rahimahullah Ta'ala in his Jamir, in the narration of Abdullah ibn Abbas, is that the Quraysh wanted to trap the Prophet. They wanted to ask him a question that he wouldn't know the answer of. So they went, the Quraysh went to the Jews. And they said to the Jews, tell us what is the story? Or tell us a question that we can ask Muhammad that he won't know the answer of. Because the Jews were people of scripture. They were people of Torah. They were people of knowledge. And so they said, this man also claims to be a prophet like you people say, you have prophets and messengers. What can we ask him that only a prophet would know? They said, ask him about the Ruh. So they came and they asked him, and Allah revealed the verse, and it is the same verse in Surah Al-Isra. These are two different incidents that relate to one single verse. And so the scholars differed as to how to reconcile between these. Does this mean that the verse was revealed twice? Because it seems that it was revealed twice. On the one hand, you have the statement of the Jews, the Quraysh with the Jews. On the other side, you have the statement of the Yahud. One seems to come earlier because if the Quraysh is asking this question, then it's referring to which period? The Mecca period. And if the Prophet is walking past the Jews and speaking to them, then what is that referring to? The Madani period. So is one the actual cause of revelation, and the other one is the Prophet referring to a different incident? Is it referring to a different incident, but the verse is revealed again? Or is it that the Prophet you know, one is weak and one is strong, one is authentic. The scholar is different over this. And that is because the general rule is that when a verse or when the companions say that this is the cause of revelation, it is referring to a single incident for a single verse. But sometimes in the Sunnah you find it. And then the scholars differ as to how to deal with it. So for example, Ibn Kathir Taala said concerning this verse, he said, it would seem from the hadith of Ibn Mas'ud that this verse is a Madani verse, right? That's what we said in the hadith of Mas'ud when he passes by the Jews that it is a Madani verse. Even though the scholars, the majority of them, if not all of them, agreed that Surah Al-Isra is what? A Makki Surah. It is a Makki Surah. So he says, therefore, that it is probably likely that Allah Azza wa revealed the verse twice. And that doesn't mean that Allah Azza wa necessarily that it came down twice. It means perhaps Allah knows best that the first time it came as revelation, the second time, because the question is asked again, Jibreel comes to him and he says, it is the same verse, meaning that it's the same response, meaning the Prophet is waiting, maybe Allah will give him a new verse, because as we know throughout the, the stage of revelation, what does Allah also do? Abrogation, nasr. Sometimes verses are removed, sometimes 
and new verses are given and so on. And so that is possible that the Prophet was waiting for that on the second time. And Ibn Hajar also said that it is likely that this verse was revealed twice and Allah knows best. So that is an example. And that is an example of of Asbab al-Nuzul. Makan al-Nuzul. Makan al-Nuzul means where a verse is revealed. So for example, you have Makki verses, you have Madani verses. And the scholars differ as to what is Makki and Madani. How do you define Makki and Madani? Yeah, so there, there is a difference of opinion, but many of the scholars are of the position that Makki is what is revealed before the Hijrah, and Madani is what is revealed after the Hijrah. Okay. The principle in Makan al-Nuzul is that the Qaida, or one of the Qawaid, one of the principles of Tafsir when it comes to Makan al-Nuzul, is that we know what is Makki or Madani in the Quran based upon those companions who say we witness this taking place in Mecca or Medina. That is how you know that something is Mecca or Medina. Mecca and Medina is determined by what? By those people who live during that time saying that it is Mecca and Medina. That is the general principle. So for example, verses that were revealed in the Quran, like Surah Al-Araq, it is a Mecca Surah. How do you know it's a Mecca Surah? Because Aisha radiallahu anha in Sahih Bukhari, she gave us the hadith of the first revelation. So you know that it is a Makki surah. If someone was to have come 300 years later, we don't know the hadith, the hadith didn't exist, we don't know. We don't know which verse was revealed first. If someone came 300 years later and said the same thing, would it hold the same weight? No. Because how could they know 200 years later, 300 years later? So it is something which the companions have to establish or their students say that we heard our teachers say, meaning the companions say that this is what was revealed at that particular time. And that is why the vast majority of the Quran, when it comes to the vast majority of the Quran, do we know whether it's Mecca or Medan in this way? Do the companions say this verse was revealed in Mecca, that surah was in Medina and so on? The majority of the Quran. Yes and no? Yes. We have many surahs of the Quran that we know are Mecca or Madani. But there are many other parts of the Quran that we don't know. And that is why the scholars often differ over surah. The most famous example being which surah? Surah Al-Fatiha. Scholars even differ over Fatiha. Is it a Mecca surah? Is it a Madani surah? Some of the scholars even said it was revealed twice, once in Mecca, once in Medina. Even though the stronger opinion is that Allah knows best that it is a Mecca surah. You find these differences of opinion. Why? Because it's not made clear in the Sunnah. The companions never said, we heard or we saw this surah being revealed in Mecca or in Medina, or before the Hijrah or after the Hijrah. And so you find these differences of opinion amongst the scholars for that particular reason. And therefore it is difficult sometimes to say 100% that this is what took place. So what do the scholars of Tafsir often do then? they use additional evidences, additional things that they consider to give strength to one opinion over another. So for example, why do some of the scholars say that Surah Fatiha is Madani? What is their root proof for this? They say because Allah Azza wa when He says غَيْدِ الْمَغْضُوبِ عَلَيْهِمَ الْضَالِينَ Who is He referring to? The Jews and the Christians. And were they Jews and Christians in the Madani period? period? So they say that's why it is Madani. That's their proof for it. And that's what some scholars do, because the hadith is not clear. So therefore they will try to look for other things. Others will say the siyaq, the verses are like Mecca verses. 
They have the same type of style, same in the same topic, same subject, same, and so they will say it looks like it is a Mecca Sunnah. You will find differences of opinion over this. But sometimes we know, like the Hadith, like the Surah, Surah Al-Nasr, we know that it is a Madini Surah. Because there are a number of Hadith that speak about it being towards the end of the life of the Prophet And so that is another rule that you find amongst the scholars of Qawaid al-Tafsir. Qiraat. When it comes to the Qiraat, there are also principles that the scholars mention. One of the Qiraat, one of the principles of Tafsir when it comes, and I'm just going through the different subjects and giving you different Qawaid as examples. Because this is a big topic, right? We could probably take like a whole year of just studying Qawaid al-Tafsir. Qiraat. Everyone knows what Qiraat are? The different modes of recitation, the different ways of reciting the Quran. So you have our recitation, which is the recitation of but then the people of Medina, or not anymore, but it used to be the people of Medina, but now North Africa, places like that, Morocco and so on, they read in the Qira'ah Wash. And other parts of the world, like Algeria and other places, they read Qalun. And then there are other Qira'at that no one really reads anymore unless they are specialists. Many of the Qira'at are not really really read as, as much as they used to, like Asusi, and like Khalaf, and like Khalad, and like many of those readings are not very common now unless there are people who are specializing in the science of Qira'ah. But often what you will find in the books of Tafsir is what? Mention of Qira'ah. And they will say that Abu Ja'far read it like this, and Bosh read it like that, and Asim read it like this, and that is something which they would mention. The principle of Tafsir when it comes to Qira'at is that the different Qira'at give you additional Tafsir. Qira'at explain the verse. One Qira'at explains the other Qira'at. It is additional tafsir. It is additional tafsir. Let us give a very simple example. In Surah uh, Al-Fatiha, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Maliki Yawmiddin. What does Maliki Yawmiddin mean? Master of the Day of Judgment. Maliki is the owner. Owner of the Day of Judgment. But the majority of Qur'an, the majority, don't read it like Maliki. What do they read? Maliki. That is the majority of the Qur'an. The majority of the Qur'an read Maliki Yawmiddin. What does Maliki mean? King. King. Now if you were not a student of Seer, or maybe sometimes you've come across this, you would just think, okay, King, owner, same thing, you know, what's the difference, let's go on. But actually there is a big difference between the two. There is a difference between being owner and between being king. What is the difference? Kingship can be transferred, so ownership is important. Okay, kingship can be transferred, but ownership, so the ownership is transferred. Ownership. You own a car today and you sell it tomorrow, you transfer ownership. Yes, you can be an owner, but it doesn't necessitate that you are the ruler, the king. For example, you have a house here in Karachi, you own it, but it is on rent. Who owns the house? You own the house. So you own the house, so you are the owner. But because you have rented it to someone else, who has day-to-day -day control over the house? Your tenants. Are you allowed to go into the house whenever you want? And you just go and start saying, oh, actually, I want to take this out and put this in and whatever. No. 
day to day you don't have control. You are not the ruler of that property in the day to day sense. What are you though? The owner. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that he is Maliki Yawmiddin, the owner of the day of judgment, some people may misunderstand you think yes, Allah owns it, but there are other people that may have, you know, we can go to the prophets, we may go to the awliya, we may go to the angels, maybe they will help us. But when Allah Azza says he's also Malik, he's also the king. Meaning you can't go to anyone else except Allah. No one else can help you on that day except Allah. There is no one that will benefit you on that day except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So now Maliki and Maliki have given us additional gifts. And that is what you will find within the Prophet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. When there is a change in the word, it is because there is an additional meaning. There is an additional meaning. Also from the rulings of the Qira'at, from the from the Qawaid or from the, um, the principles of Qira'at and Tafsir, is that sometimes those Qira'at give you an additional tafsir and explanation. So it is not qira'at that we read. These are not qira'at that are read today. But they are what we call qira'at shada. A qira'at shada is what? It is a peculiar reading. One that wasn't accepted by the majority of the companions. It's not the one that was written by Muhammad when he had his final Muslim. Sometimes the qira'ah is not an accepted, widely accepted qira'ah. It's not what we call a qira'ah mutawatir. But it is called a qira'ah shadha, meaning that one of the companions used to read it in this way. The qira'ah shadha, the principle of tafsir says, is still used as tafsir. For example, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, حَافِذُوا عَلَى الصَّلَوَاتِ وَالصَّلَاتِ الْمُسْطَارِ Preserve the prayers and preserve the middle prayer. What is the middle prayer? The scholars different way. If you go to the books of Tafsir, some of them said Dhuhr, some of them said Fajr, some of them said Maghrib. They said many different prayers. And all of them has a position. There's a reason why they said that. But in the hadith of Aisha, she said she would recite this verse, and she said to someone who made a copy of the Quran for her. She asked someone to write the whole Quran. Because in those days, no printing press. So if you want the Quran, what you have to do? You have to find someone to? Write it by hand. She said to someone, write for me the Quran out. But she said, when you get to this verse in Surah Baqarah, stop and come to me and tell me. And then when he came to this verse, he stopped and he said, Oh Aisha, I reached this verse, Hafidhu'a'l-Salawati was-Salatil Musta'. She said, it is Salatul Asr. Write Hafidhu'a'l-Salawati was-Salatil Musta'. Salatul Asr. And so that is something which is not a qira'ah. You don't read the Quran in that way. If you open the Quran today, you won't find Salatul Asr in that verse. But that is her reading. It is her reading, and what is what is it for us? It is tafsir. It is tafsir, and that is also from the principles of this particular uh, science of Quran. Okay. Let me give another example now. There's something different. We move on from Quran, and I'm trying to give like a broad uh, kind of example of different things. Tariqat al-Tafsir. How to make tafsir? The general principle of how to make tafsir 
So we are going to now like tafsir of Quran, the Quran, tafsir of Quran, the Sunnah, tafsir of Quran from the statements of the companions in the Salaf. The general principle is that when there is tafsir, or when you make tafsir, it must be done either through an authentic narration, through an established narration, or through a position that is accepted, that is correct, meaning an opinion that is correct. Tafsir is made in two ways. Tafsir al-Ma'thur, and al-Ma'thur means what? A narration that has been mentioned, either from the Sunnah, or from the companions, or from the Tabirin. It is a narration, or it is done with Ra'i, with opinion. But there are two types of opinion. One is not allowed, and that is when someone comes and they just make up what they think Tafsir is. But the other one is allowed, and that is when a person comes and he looks at the state, the general verse of the Quran, the Sunnah, the statements of the companions, and they deduce a ruling. And this is what the majority of the scholars of Tafsir do. Imam Al-Tabari, Al-Qurtubiya, when they say, I think this is what the Tafsir is, this is what they're doing. But they're not just doing it from their own head without any knowledge. They're doing it based upon knowledge. They've read the Quran, they've read the Sunnah, they've read the statements of the Sahaba, but they don't find a single narration that speaks about this verse. Not a clear narration about this verse. So now based upon their overall knowledge, they give you their position, they give you their opinion. So tafsir is taken from those two ways. It is taken either from a narration that is established or an opinion that is established upon narration. That is the qaida when it comes to how to make tafsir. Another qaida, but this time to do with tafsir of making of, of the sunnah, tafsir of the sunnah. The general principle of making tafsir of the Qur'an is that when you first look at the tafsir, what's the first thing that you look at to make tafsir of the Qur'an? You look at the rest of the Qur'an. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala explains verses with other verses. Many times in the stories of the prophets, if you read the other stories in the Qur'an of the same prophet, you will have tafsir of the story. Allah mentions different parts of the story in different places. That is called Tafsir al-Qur'an, bil Qur'an. And it is very important, and that's why the scholars used to write books just on this. Right, the book of the teacher of our teacher, Shaykh Muhammad al-Amin al-Shanqiti, rahimahullah ta'ala, called Adwa'ul Bayan. He made Tafsir of the whole Qur'an only with what is mentioned elsewhere in the Qur'an. And that is a very beautiful way of making Tafsir, because one of the biggest mistakes in Tafsir is that we take a verse and we ignore the rest of the Qur'an. And that is incorrect. You take the verse and you read the rest of the Quran. And that's why people sometimes complain and they say, no, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't say in the Quran that you have to do this and you have to do it. Allah said, do this. And they take one verse. What about the rest of the Quran? Yes, in this verse Allah didn't say it, but he said it elsewhere. So why don't you take one of the Quran? And if it's not found in the Quran, then what do you do? You find it in the Sunnah. The rule of tafsir, when it comes to tafsir of the Sunnah is, that if you find a hadith of the Prophet وسلم, then you don't need anything else in terms of tafsir. You don't need anyone else's opinion. If the Prophet وسلم, said that this is what it's referring to, then you don't need anyone else to come to you and say, actually, no, I think this and I think that. For example, in the skin of Allah Azzawajal, those people who have Iman and they don't mix their Iman with oppression, those are the people who have safety and they will be guided, Allah says. What is Dhulm here? What is it referring to? Because Dhulm can refer to many things. Oppression is of many forms. But when Abu Bakr came to the Prophet and he said, O Messenger of Allah, which one of us doesn't commit oppression? 
with Iman. All of us oppressed, all of us commit sins and make mistakes and oppress. He said that is not the meaning here of Dhul. Rather the meaning of this is shirk because Allah says, Inna shirka Shirk is the greatest of oppression. Now we know in this verse, therefore, what the meaning of Dhul is. Do we need to go to the companion? Do we need to go to the tabi'in? Do we need to go up to a tabari or qurtul or kathir? No. Because we have a statement of the Prophet And that is a very important principle when it comes to tafsir of the Quran with the Sunnah of the Prophet <coughs> Another example. Tafsir of the Sahaba, Tafsir of the companions of the Prophet The Tafsir of the companions of the Prophet and this is generally in the tafsir of the Salaf, anyway, generally speaking. And this is the, the, the one that I was mentioning to earlier that Ibn Taymiyyah mentioned in detail. The companions would make tafsir by what we call tanawwah. Tanawwah means by giving examples. And therefore, what you think at first glance is a difference of opinion is in reality not a difference of opinion, but a difference of expression. A difference of wording, not a difference of opinion. Let us give an example. In Surah Al-Fatiha, Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala says, "Ihdina Sirat Al-Mustaqim." Oh Allah, guide us to the straight path. You will find in the books of Tafsir many opinions of the Salaf as to what Sirat Al-Mustaqim is. Some of them said it is Islam. Others said it is the Quran. Others said that it is the Sunnah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And they had a number of different opinions. In reality though, are these different opinions? Or are they the same opinion? The same opinion. They are the same opinion expressed in different ways because isn't Islam the Quran and the Sunnah? And doesn't the Quran mean that you follow Islam and the Sunnah? And doesn't follow the Sunnah mean that you follow the Quran and Islam? Yes. They are one and the same, but different people speak in different ways and they mention different things. Like for example, if I was to say to you, describe this room. Some of you would say it's got four walls. Some of you would say it's a room that holds a hundred people. You're speaking about the same thing, but one of you is referring to the walls and the structure. Others are referring to the space within, and so on. And others would say, notice the room on the third floor, the fourth floor, the first floor. You're describing it as location. You are all speaking about one and the same thing, but it's just that you're coming from different angles. The Salaf often do this. Ibn Taymiyyah says, especially the early generation, the companions of Tabi'een, much of their tafsir is actually the same. Instead, what they have done is that they've given you different examples. So the rule of tafsir is this, that where you have the tafsir of the Salaf, the early scholars, to reconcile is better than to choose one over the other if you can. If you can reconcile, like we did in, in Surah Al-Fatiha, what is the correct tafsir then of Surah Al-Mustaqeem? That it is all of those things that the Salaf said. What you have done now is brought all of those positions together. Another example, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَالْبَاقِيَاتُ الصَّالِحَاتِ الْمَالُ وَالْبَنُونَ زِيرَةُ الْحَيَاةِ الْدُنْيَا وَالْبَاقِيَاتُ الصَّالِحَاتِ The everlasting good deed. Again, the scholars that have seen differed so much. If you look at just their wording, they differ. Some of them said there is dhikr, some of them said there is salah, some of them said there is Quran, so said many different things. But is there actually a difference of opinion? No. What is the common thing between them? They are all actions that you find the reward on Yom al Anything that lasts until Yom Al-Qiyamah is everlasting. But they just differ as to which one of those actions is best. 
So some said dhikr is better than others. Others said seeking knowledge. Others said sadaqah. Others said so on. But in reality, they agreed on the same principle. And that is an extremely important principle of tafsir. Because one of the biggest problems in tafsir today is that people say, no, the companion is different. So therefore, there is more scope for us to differ. If the companions couldn't agree on the Quran, then what about us 1400 years later? Why can't we differ? But actually, in reality, the companions didn't differ on the Quran. The vast majority of what the Quran says, they agreed upon. And yes, they did differ at times. There, there are differences where you cannot reconcile. One said this thing, one said the other. There is no meeting in, the two, uh, in between. But that is the exception to the rule. They are the few and far between. They are not the majority of what the scholars of Tafsir did. Why? Because their teacher is one. Same teacher. And that is the Prophet And so when the Prophet is teaching them, then they don't need to differ in the way that we would differ in, in times that came later on. The, another qaida when it comes to the tafsir of the salaf is that if the companions have a statement concerning tafsir, then their position is stronger than anyone who came after them. Even if, to me and you, it seems like the other positions are stronger. It may seem, just from reading the Arabic, that actually the verse speaks about something else. But the companions say, no, this wasn't revealed about that, it was revealed about this. Therefore, what the companion says is the position of the verse, that is the position of the verse of the Qur'an. Let me give you an example of this, if I can, uh, if I can find it. In the statement of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when Allah says, وَشَهِدَ شَاهِدٌ مِّن بَنِي إِسْرَائِيلَ عَلَى مِثْلِهِ فَآمَنَ وَاسْتَكْبَرُكُمْ The verse in Surah Al-Ahbar. Allah says, and a witness came from Bani Israel, and he bore witness to this, and he believed, and as for the rest of you, he showed arrogance. The scholars differed as to who was the shahid. Who is this witness that came? Many of the scholars who came later on, they said that it's referring to Musa alayhi salatu But in a number of narrations of the companions, they said that actually it's referring to who? To the companion, Abdullah ibn Salam. From the companions, he used to be a Jew, and that's why he's called from Bani Israel, but then he accepted Islam. That position of the companions is stronger. And Imam al tabari when he mentioned the differences of opinion, he said at the end in this verse, and the fact that the companions said that it's referring to Abdullah ibn should be enough. Because surely the companions are more aware of which verse of the Quran is referring to who than those people who came after them. Uh, okay, I'm just going to give uh, one last example and then we can keep Tafsir when it comes to the Arabic language. Tafsir when it comes to the Arabic language. One of the rules of Tafsir when it comes to the Arabic language is that when the verb in Arabic is in the past tense, it is used to show something that is consistent something that is established. And when the verb is used in the present tense, it is to show that it is continuous. Continuous. Past tense refers to something that is constant, established. Present tense refers to that it is continuous. I will give you one example and then inshallah ta'ala we will conclude. Allah Azza wa in the Quran often he says about salah, aqam salah. But also he says in the Quran, يُقِيمُوا نَصَّرًا 
أقاموا الصلاة إز حسنت يقيمون الصلاة إز فرزنت What therefore do we understand about the believers when it comes to Salah? They are people who are firm and established upon Salah and they are people who are continuous in their Salah. So the Mu'min is the one who is firmly established on the principle of Salah. They establish the Salah. And how do they establish it? Continuously. Every day, every time of Salah, they pray. And that is a principle from the principles of the Arabic language. There are many examples that I can give, and I have like you know like hundreds of examples <laughs> before me. But it is difficult for me to give this in a single session. But what I want you to do, inshallah ta'ala, as a benefit for you, uh, also, but also for our regular Quran progression students, is to give you an introduction into a solid tafsir. And as you study tafsir, and you read more tafsir, and you learn more tafsir, one of the things that you will learn are the principles that the scholars have in the tafsir of the Quran, and that is something which is extremely important. Ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he blesses us with the tafsir of the Qur'an and that Allah Azza gives us understanding of this religion and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala leads us from the people of the Qur'an wa sallallahu wa sallam ala nabi Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in wa sallamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh